0: Everyone, welcome back to Startup from Scratch. Uh, it's good to have you here. We're about halfway through the season now, and today we have a really, really special guest. Uh, his name is Kyle, and uh, today he's going to be talking to us about launching beta, and uh, we'll let him kind of explain what that really means and and his journey with um, launching uh, different companies. And uh, at, at this point, you know, we've talked about how do you come up with an idea, co-founder date, uh, define your MVP, you know, you've, you've figured out what you've, your value proposition is, you've maybe fundraised, and now it's time to launch and let people see what you've been working on. Um, so um, yeah, I'm going to hand it off to Kennedy. He'll tell us a little bit more about Kyle. And Kyle, welcome on the podcast. Uh, we can't wait to, to get into this.
1: Yeah, super excited to get to talk to Kyle today. Um, I still remember the first time uh, that I spoke to Kyle, it was uh, you're working on a different project then, but I remember being immediately struck with um, the sincerity that you approached it with and uh, really excited to get to talk to you and hear your thoughts more today. Um, So without further ado, this is uh, Kyle Wom, who is, as he uh, very eloquently puts it, is creating dope technology for the culture. But Kyle, please uh, tell us more about yourself.
2: Thanks, Myrna. Thanks, Kennedy. Super excited to be on the Startup from Scratch podcast. Um, super honored as, as well to be on the podcast. Um, as you all mentioned, my name is Kyle Woon. Um, Creating Dope Technology for the Culture. That's kind of like my tagline that came from a project I worked on uh, called Drakestagram that lets people use uh, Drake Lyrics as Instagram captions. So if you need a quality IG caption, go to drakestagram.com. But (laughs) a little bit about me. I'm originally from Atlanta, uh, grew up there, and then uh, studied computer science at Georgia Tech and um, interned while I was in school at Twilio. And I joined them full time as a software engineer after I graduated. So I started there February 2017. And I worked there for a few years. And, you know, I realized that I, I'm I'm a builder at heart and I'm an entrepreneur at heart and so I'm like you know let's go for it and so I essentially left Twilio back in December uh, 2019 to start my own company um, called Shopper and I started with two other friends and this is the company that Kennedy and I um, when I first met Kennedy that I was telling her about and that we were doing I was essentially doing customer research trying to understand you know my target audience and so. What Shopper originally was, it was um, on-demand delivery for clothes. So think of Uber Eats for clothes. But as you know, uh, or as people may not know, delivery businesses are really difficult. There's a lot of logistics going on, and so when COVID hit, we kind of pivoted to um, we, we pivoted to a try before you buy um, for online retailers. So when you go to like a brick-and-mortar store retail store you can actually try on the clothes before buying them but you can't do that when you shop online you have to actually purchase the clothes and if you don't like it you have to return it wait for a refund and i actually tried that with a few like you know beta customers and one of them did this in april and i just got the refund back like you know two days ago which was in it's july now so it took a while so i definitely thought that was something that was needed but with the landscape and the ecosystem um of like COVID, I just didn't think retail was the place to be in, and so I took a step back and I left Shopper, and I and now I'm actually working on a company called Overflow, um, which is making generosity frictionless, starting by uh, making it super easy to donate publicly traded stocks to nonprofits, and I'm currently on the founding team and I'm leading technology there. So that's essentially uh, me in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, and you um, actually—I've—I don't remember how I know this, but I remember you and I were in a call together at some point. And you are also one thing that I that I do want to highlight is that you're a community builder, and you've started—I don't remember its name, but I remember. uh, Sorry, could you? It's called over the top. Over the top. Yep, and it's this amazing community that you started when you moved to San Francisco. Uh, and, um, I'm, I was actually really excited to go to some of the events that you were hosting, but then, um, the COVID shutdown happened and, uh, I'm really excited for that to pick back up. But if you want to tell, um, our listeners a little bit about that, I, I, would love to, um, give you the opportunity to do, to do yeah, that. Yeah,
2: definitely. So my yeah. former roommate and I, uh, we were, we actually went to college together. Um, and so best friends and we moved out to San Francisco around the same time. Um, He was working at Accenture at the time. I was working at Twilio. And, you know, we didn't really know many people out here in the Bay Area. And it was my birthday that was – so I moved here in 2017, February 2017. So my uh, birthday in 2018, which was in January, um, it was coming around, and my roommate was like, what are you doing for your birthday? And I was like, you know, to be honest, I'm not completely sure, you know, I knew a couple people after like the year that I had been in San Francisco, but I wasn't like, I wasn't super, I I wasn't like super in the know. And so he was like, we should do a party bus. And I'm like, that sounds like a lot of fun. I had never done a party bus before. And so we invited like all our friends did everything at cost. So we, you know, whatever the cost uh, of the bus, we just divided that by everyone. We weren't trying to make money. And it was a lot of fun. We went over like, you know, um, the The Golden Gate Bridge, amazing views. It's just a, a really fun time. A lot of people met each other um, through us through that event. And so, a couple of friends that were on that bus, they were like, "Well, our birthdays are in March. We should do like a St. Patrick's Day slash birthday party um, yacht party." <laughs> and we were like, "Wow, that actually seems pretty cool." And so we tried that out. And um, those friends, they you know, they had friends fly in from out of town, and so they uh, charged their friends at cost, and then. Uh, my roommate Gabriel and I, we, like, we were like, okay, what if we can actually, you know, upsell this because, you know, we're providing the experience. And we did that. We made some money and we were like, okay, this could actually be a business. So then we just started throwing different events, parties. And, you know, as COVID was like right before COVID, we were pivoting to like more, less parties, like still doing parties, but more, you know, cause not everyone wants to, you know, have a party, but we still want people to have those meaningful connections because so many people met through us. So, you know, Things Mm -hmm. like, you know, paint and and sip nights. And one thing that we're thinking about in October, if things are back to normal and people can gather, is like kind of like a a party for a purpose type thing where it'd be a voter registration drive. And so in order to get in, you have to actually, you know, register uh, to vote and you have to be, you know, confirmed to register if you're eligible, you know, at least to uh, vote. And so that we can really... Um, engage people civically as well. So we really want to be able to just create a cool community where people can come together, have fun, and also, you know, connect on a professional level.
0: I love that. Um, It it sounds like you've started um, kind of a host of things from things that are more um, to to get people together and and community-based to, you know, an, an online marketplace. So um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what launching beta looks like. I know that, um, people can sometimes be stuck in a, uh, my, my, my MVP is not, is not perfect. It's not ready. And, uh, kind of trying to perfect all the pieces, but, uh, what, what does launching beta mean, mean to you?
2: Yeah. Um, launching, um, and I, I did, I've, I've been reading a lot of books and I, or I've read a lot of books in the past about, you know, startups, the lean startup. All these things, and the the best advice that I've received has been you know just launch. So in the case of Shopper, um, we essentially had a landing page, and then we had a type form that asked a couple different questions about you know people's sizes, um, you know what their kind of what their style is, and like we, we were definitely no Stitch Fix, so we didn't have anything like you know a AI or machine learning algorithm that can. You know, you give us certain preferences and we automatically know what you want. We would, you know, we would cheat a little bit and look at, and these are generally people that we knew that we launched with. And so it wasn't even like a big, loud launch. It was like starting with family and friends. And so we were were like, okay, what kind of clothes do you like? Or we would look at their Instagram and we would try to uh, find things that way. And we actually got a lot of great feedback through that. And one thing I think we did neglect though, it was talking to, People. And so that's kind of when I realized I need to talk to people more. So that's when actually when I reached out to Kennedy, and uh, Kennedy was like, I hate shopping. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, um, I was like, let's see how, you know, we could serve you. And so I realized that a huge part of launching beta is like getting that feedback. And I think it's scary too for us to at least for me personally, or was at a certain point to ask for feedback. Because, you know, if someone like a customer's feedback isn't what you hypothesize, it's kind of like one of those things like oh we're back to square one. And I think that's that's totally okay, though, you know, especially with startups. And then with um, Overflow, you know, we're actually doing our public launch, you know, this week. It's uh, July 8th, currently, you know, at this taping. And so we're doing our... Congrats. Thank you. We're doing our public launch July 10th. And, you know, we've been operating for some time. I joined the team about two months ago. And, you know, we have customers, uh, but we're, uh, and so we, have we in the business perspective launched, you know, the company's incorporated. Um, we have a product that people have been using, but now we're trying to do like, you know, an actual public launch um, to let people know, you know, we exist, allow people to like engage with our platform and, you know, we really want to engage donors. And so we're, uh, partnering with an organization called Street Code Academy, and they're in East Palo Alto, and um, they're doing a lot for the community. And they pretty much teach people. And at first, I thought it was just youth, but they teach people, um, elderly people as well, um, about technology, how to use technology, coding, all these different things. And it's interesting because East Palo Alto is like you know, less than probably like two or three miles away from you know, the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, but there's this mm-hmm. disparity. And so we're trying to help them raise money on overflow um, so that they can get laptops and internet service for a year for, you know, the students that street code Academy. And so we're calling the campaign equity for the inequitable. And so we're, that's a huge push that we're doing, but so we're, we're doing the public launch and we're trying to get a lot of traction because we feel that, you know, the nonprofits really understand the value, but donors, aren't used to donating stock. They're they're used to donating um, money. And so um, the public launch is to help communicate like the advantages of donating stock as well as, you know, how they can make an impact with some of the nonprofits that we've partnered with.
1: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So I think one thing that can be a little bit confusing or at least it was honestly confusing for me when I first uh, moved out to the Bay Area and was surrounded by the startup culture Um, I wasn't actually entirely certain at first what was the difference between a beta launch versus launch. And uh, what I've come to learn is that the word launch uh, is a word we use a lot because it's something that we do a lot of. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I'm wondering if you could maybe give a little bit of insight of, um, you know, if you're wanting to do a beta launch where you're picking this uh, select group of people to be the first people to give you feedback, um, how do you go about figuring out who the right beta users for you are, and then how do you once you figure out what that person needs to look like, how do you actually find them?
2: Yeah, so for the beta, I think knowing your target market, knowing your target market or tar- target audience is so important, and like especially in the case of shopper, because you know I saw that from inception, um, you know from idea to essentially like you know a beta launch, and I think we weren't really dialed in on you know who our particular customer was. And so we eventually, you know, came to a point where we're like, okay, our customer are generally, you know, millennials, people that, and we felt that people that would use Stitch Fix were probably using it for more professional clothing. And we, we kind of had this saying, like, if people want to go to Coachella, they're going to come to Shopper because, you know, we would, we're, we would know like the different trends and something that you would want to wear that Stitch Fix probably wouldn't recommend to you. Um and so we were like, okay, let's start. And because we know that demographic so well, we were like, okay, let's start with friends and family. And generally I think we started with those people because, and this is, and this is a consumer business, but we started with those people because, you know, I feel like the stakes were pretty low. It's like, it's great feedback. Uh, and we definitely want it to also charge too, because I feel like if you give away a service and you don't charge people, I feel like the quality of feedback isn't the same. And so, um, And so, yeah, so we started with friends and family because we felt like, you know, stakes were lower. And I think once, you know, you kind of get past that beta launch phase and as you're starting to prove your hypothesis, I think that's when it's like, okay, let's start to get people we don't know. Um, And in the case of uh, B2B, like business to business, businesses, (laughs) um, in that case, I think – it's also kind of like starting small too. So like a lot of the nonprofits that we are working with are local nonprofits. Um, they aren't like, they aren't huge, but they, they're making huge impacts though. They're So they're still impactful, uh, but we're starting with them um, because we have relationships there. So I always say like start with relationships when, you know, you're, when you're launching beta, people that you know that will, you know, give you feedback and give you honest feedback. And I think as you continue to grow and get that feedback and hone the product, then, you know, fanning out to people that you don't know. So then, you know, getting like the big nonprofits, for example, in our case of overflow.
0: Uh, when you started with Shopper and, you know, tried things out with family and friends, uh, were you still with them when you guys transitioned to trying out to customers that weren't family and friends? And And what was that transition like? And did you find any like really great insights in that?
2: Yeah, so I was. And so with family and friends, it was a a relatively easy sell. Uh, Just because, you know, people like people, family and friends support you, you know, and, you know, they love you, they want to see you be successful. And so to actually go out to the people that we didn't know. And this is as, like, you know, COVID is happening. And so we're, like, indoors. And But before, actually before, like a few weeks before COVID happened, what we would do is we would go to different, like, meetups, networking events, conferences, kind of just, like, pass out flyers. And we were just being really scrappy. And we were like, hey, try this out. You know, it's free for your first, you know, use. Uh, those kind of things. And, and then also another tactic that we used to get people we didn't know we're just experimenting with like Facebook and Instagram ads. And with both of those, like, you know, passing out flyers to people we didn't know and Facebook and Instagram ads, people were more skeptical, I think. Um, to because we we integrated Stripe into our website to collect, you know, payment. And we really wanted to, you know, get that payment to kind of like get that validation that people would use this service. And so what would happen is people would go to our type form, fill out information, and Some people, like, we had two kind of paths. People can people that already knew what they wanted, they could just, like, paste a link uh, from, like, say, for example, H&M. They could paste a link to, like, uh, some pants that they wanted. Or some people wanted to be styled. But either way, once you finish the type form, that's when we would ask for payment. And we saw a huge drop off there. And I think the biggest piece is that people didn't know who we were. And there was kind of, like, that lack of credibility uh, when it comes to, like, you know they're like who's this startup are they just trying to scam me take our money and so i think when it comes to like working with people you don't know it's it's building up a reputation and i think a way we could have combated that was um you know everyone that signed up and we did try this everyone that signed up they gave us their email address and phone number and we tried to follow up with them but um i'm not i'm not sure i think it's just at the beginning stages of working with people you don't know you just have to be very high touch and build that trust. I think that's with anything in business, you know, people do business with people that they know and trust.
1: It's very interesting. I I think that one of the, that, that piece of how you establish that early trust, I think that is so much of the challenge that a lot of the time I I tend to think of beta testing more about it being product testing, but it's actually, it's not just the product in terms of the tool that you think about building. It's you're also testing your entire approach to the market. Can right. you communicate your value proposition to people in a way that enables enough trust to overcome those barriers? Um, and I think that's an interesting aspect of like approaching a beta launch is that you're not going to put the money behind it that you would a bigger launch, yep. right? Because you haven't validated enough to justify that kind of spend yet. Yeah. But as a result, it completely changes how you reach people because there are literally different tools that exist and that you implement if you are doing a broad launch, which in some ways is easier to establish credibility through because you can appear like you're a larger, more established entity. Whereas when you're doing that smaller launch and you're saying, Hey, this is small, this is new. This is the beginning. You have no choice, but to address the, the absence of a past track record. Um, and I think it comes back to a lot of the things that Elle talked about in our first episode, which is about this ability to transfer what your personal brand is and to be able to use the trust in the personal brand and then the personal reports that you establish and being able to transfer that trust to your business no, absolutely. Um, and I think I think the beta launch is such a high test point for that.
2: No, definitely. And I think, yeah, converting that kind of like social currency that you have, Um, you know, the personal social currency into the business, I think is huge. And especially starting with family and friends, because I think once you kind of, you know, create a, a great experience for them, you know, they have people in their network that you don't know, they may be, you know, one to two degrees away. However, you know, I don't personally, I wouldn't personally know them. So I think that's kind of how, you know, once you figure out you have a good product, and then, you know, your family and friends start to evangelize, then, you know, their family and friends Um, and it, kind of, it creates that network effect. Um, but I think that part is, I think the, is really, is really important to stick that, you know, that beta and it's okay. It's not going to be right the first time. And that's totally understandable. But I think, you know, keep working at it and like, you know, using that social currency. Um, I think that's, um, the way to get closer to, you know, having those people that you don't know become customers of your company, of your business.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Um, I do have a question for you in terms of what happens when, you know, your, your beta launch maybe doesn't go as expected. Um, and especially if, if you have maybe investors in the picture by now, um, what are, how, how do you go about that? How do you explain, you know, how things, um, how things went or, or why you got the results that you did or, or didn't? Um, and, and how do you move forward from that?
2: That's a good point. I actually haven't encountered that problem just yet um with shopper we actually hadn't received any um any funding uh but with overflow so we've received funding um and so uh we've received a little bit of funding we raised a pre-seed round and you know with this launch we're really hoping to um you know really engage donors uh with the with the partnership of Street Code Academy and so um i think one of the things though is like nothing's ever going to be perfect and i think that's the thing that working in startups we have to understand is that you know things aren't perfect but it's like what did you learn um and i think that the learning the learning piece is the the most valuable piece whether things went right or went wrong it's like why did things go right or why did things go wrong and i think also like you know because we do have investors like being able to lean on our investors for advice you know based on our observations or behaviors i think that's kind of like you know the approach we're gonna take. Like, okay, well, this isn't working out. Um, you know, what what do you think about this? And you know, also like tapping into our network of founders, like you all and other people. But you know, we're we're hoping for a successful launch. But I think it's okay not to have a quote unquote successful launch or be on like you know the front page of Product Hunt <laughs> and all those things. But I think just understanding why and understanding how you can like, you know, improve and, you know, when you relaunch kind of how Kennedy was saying that, you know, we, we launch and then, you know, we launch so many times. So learning from the previous launch and and relaunching, whether it's, you know, just the way you message it to your customers or like your product. But I think the learning piece is the most important part.
1: Totally. And I think that's one of the interesting things about, understanding launches and and betas and all of these different pieces is there's a certain amount of realizing that what appeared to be these very coordinated, precise events from the consumer side, once you're actually like driving that car and you get under the hood, you realize that that's not what it looks like at all. Like we're all just trying to figure out and make up our little piece and and present it to the world in this tidy package and say, I hope you like it, (laughs) you know? But it's so funny because it, everything from a consumer side and, and as the as a company, of course, you try to create this this uh, experience that it is a completely, um, it's a complete package, that it has everything you need, that um, it's going to do everything that you need. And I think it's very fascinating because in reality, we're hoping that that's true. And we're hoping that when we say that, that to the customer, that the customer agrees with us, right? Right. Uh, and it's such a, such a delicate balance.
2: It is. It's like I feel like there's that level of confidence needed because, you know, no one wants to buy anything from someone that they're not even confident about themselves. <laughs> I feel like there's that confidence needed, but then I think, and I think that's also when it comes to, like, you know, early adopters. I feel like people that are early adopters and people that know, like, your company is a startup, I feel like they they have high, they have expectations, but I feel like they're a little bit forgiving because they're like, you know, it's a startup, right? And there's those people that always, you know, upgrade when apple has a new ios release and then there's some people that wait so um, i think it depends on the type of customer too that you have
1: totally what what's been the biggest challenge that you've encountered in trying to to get a beta launch actually off the ground
2: hmm i think the biggest encounter uh well the biggest problem that i've encountered has just been the marketing piece. So I have like an engineering background. And so, you know, I can build and I'm a builder at heart. But I think the the most difficult part for me has been marketing. It's like, you know, how do we effectively, you know, get this out to the masses and entice people to actually want to use this, want to try this out, or at least look into it. And so I think that's the, the, the most difficult part. Um, and also, I think more than that, too, is just like, you know, What are we measuring um, and, like, kind of coming up with those metrics? Like, what are we even measuring from a launch? Are we, you know, looking to get revenue from it? (laughs) Are we looking, you know, just for, you know, brand awareness? Um, But, yeah, I I would say, like, the marketing piece for me has been the most difficult part.
1: Uh, Kyle, we should start a support group for each other. I'm completely in your boat. (laughs) Yeah,
2: marketing is hard. And it's, like...
1: It's so hard. (laughs) You really have to
2: understand, like, people, you know. And I feel like I'm a people people person, but... You just really have to understand people and what, like, what gets them.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think it's the challenge of understanding what motivates people that aren't at all like you. Yeah, And, and that, at least for me, that's where I keep struggling is I'm like, well, I don't know how to do this kind of campaign because I generally hate them and ignore them. Exactly, right.
2: <laughs> but I know they're effective. I personally never click on Instagram ads, never. So I'm just like, wow, people actually like shop on Instagram. That's like new to me.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm definitely one of those victims. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but this is something that Kennedy and I actually talk about quite a bit, um, which is like marketing and uh, brand awareness and what makes a successful, um, you know, launch or even um, a successful company, especially especially when it comes to something like, you know, your first company shopper, which is based on uh, people engaging, trusting you, wanting, wanting to buy something from you. Um, and uh, one thing that I had come across uh, this week that I thought was really interesting is um, that when you, when people go to an Instagram page or they go to your website, um, there's almost like this super key piece of like the emotion evoked by by what they see and how you. your brand needs to be almost a way for them to express their identity, um, and how that is such an interesting thing to think about. And um, I feel like companies that do really, really great marketing make it seem so easy. Like you go, you love it, you want to wear their clothes, you want you want to wear their logo, um, and, and and you want to you want to give them your money and a lot of it has to do with like what they've done and said to kind of play on, on the subconscious and and make you feel like this is something that, you know, you want to, you want to be a part of or something that represents you. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, It's very tricky. And and I think it's very cool. Um,
2: Yeah. It's definitely fascinating to me.
1: Yeah. 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 Oh, that's the best part, right. Is that it, it is endlessly fascinating and it is a, once you get to a certain point, it becomes very data driven. Yeah. Um, And so like, there's this moment where it starts off feeling very uh, vague and amorphous and subjective. And then at a certain moment, it just the coin flips, and it's nothing but numbers and data crunching and iterations based off of the performance. Yeah. Um, And it's such an incredible transition that occurs in such a Such a small amount of time. Yeah,
2: I hear all these, like, startup stories about people, you know. It's like, you know, they try different things, they don't work, and then they do one thing, and then they kind of, they reach product market fit. And it seems like, you know, at that point, it's like, it's like autopilot. It's like, you're still, I guess if we're using, like, a plane or a rocket analogy, it's like, you're still, you know... Going higher, you know, trying to reach a higher altitude, but at that point, it's like, you know, just how do we get this thing to grow? Uh, but I think once you get that formula of like, okay, this works, this resonates with my customers, people want to use it. I think I just think that's amazing. So that's that's what I'm dreaming of right now, and I think a lot of people dream of like, you know, product market fit and like, how do we get this to actually take off. And then at that point we can just use metrics from, you know, previous customers, you know, how Facebook has like the lookalike audience. And you can say, okay, these are people that are like my customers. How do we actually like engage them?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think one of the, um, one of the things that I think has been a challenge that at least I'm navigating for the first time um, is putting together those pieces of the marketing and the beta launch and trying to look for early signals of traction because you don't want to spend a ton of money and only to discover that you never really had product market fit. What you had was a very expensive customer acquisition process that eventually forced people onto your platform. Um, But at the same time, it's like, you want to have enough traffic volume to know that it's actually your message that's not working and not that you didn't give it a chance to be heard. Um, and so it's it's such an interesting kind of balancing act of, I think more than anything, it's about figuring out if you're asking the right questions. Yeah. Because I think that's really where it, it ends up like making or breaking the betas. Did you ask the right questions to find the right answers, right? Sort of like the idea of don't, don't pivot if you don't understand why you're pivoting. Yep um but also like don't don't move till you understand why
2: yeah and i think another thing that i'm learning too is like you know not taking everything for face value like even what your customers say and like drilling down into the why and so like they may say oh um you know i, I don't have a good example but they may say something about your product or something that they want or that they would like to see or maybe why they don't like your product and what I'm learning now is to say, well, why is that? You know, kind of do like the whole five whys. And I think, you know, to that mm-hmm. fifth why, and you drill deeper, you really get like those insights. And I think that's really helpful. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing that I'm learning is like, you know, talk to the customer. That's like um, the the important thing. And I did Y Combinator, a startup school that they usually do. And I know there's like one of those, in one of the sessions, one of the talks, They're like, you know, if you're not talking to your customers, then, you know, you're kind of like flying uh, flying blind. I think by talking to, you know, customers, that's like an opportunity to even get the marketing right. Because once, you know, we're able to understand their pain points, then we're able to effectively, you know, say, you know, our product does this and, you know, it alleviates that pain point. But it's really difficult. And, you know, that also varies business by business. So um, there's there's no magic there's no magic pill, uh, for it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Totally. I was wondering, um, when is like a good point or, or a threshold that you feel like companies should meet between, you know, doing user interviews and finally launching beta?
2: Yeah. Um, to be honest, I'm not even sure. And like, in the case of shopper, we we like we kind of had a a, a a hypothesis, and we we did like a little customer or user interviews, but we didn't really like intensively do user interviews, and so we kind of just like launched. But you know, if I were to do it all over again, I definitely would have done a, a lot more user interviews, interviewed a whole lot more people, um, probably on the order of like you know one hundred, two hundred. I don't know how many people is, you know, significant, is statistically significant. Um, but I think, you know, once I started to find some trends, I think that's kind of like, you know, multiple people saying the same thing uh, or having the same problems. I think that's the kind of point where I'm like, okay, well, let's let's build something and launch. Uh, but I still think, you know, simultaneously after launch, there's still opportunity to do user interviews because I feel like there's, there's always going to be, you know, and I, I think especially once you start putting things in front of people their minds start to turn they start to think of other things and so I don't think there's ever like an end to user interviews I think it's definitely something that's um that's always going it's perpetual uh but and also with user interviews there's an art to it and I don't think I've I've personally cracked that art uh to the user interviews I know some people talk about the mom test which is a book that talks about um and I started reading it I haven't finished it but it pretty much talks about you know how to pitch your well how to put your idea in front of people but not essentially pitching them it's like how to ask them the right questions so they don't know what you're working on and it's a it's a way so you can extract all the bs so they don't think that you're actually because most people will especially people you know they're going to be like oh that's great even if they don't think it is you know they'll lie to you so it's able to filter all that out and so you can get your the real raw data and so that's something that i also need to like learn more of and like how to effectively user interview, how to ask the right questions.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I read that book, could not recommend it enough for anyone who's about to start doing user interviews uh, and to be able to get the best out of them. You can do 100, 200, 300 user interviews, but if you're not asking the right questions, it, it doesn't matter uh, what the answers were. Um, and that was like a really harsh reality to realize that you could spend so much time trying to, to find these people to interview. And if you're not asking the right questions, you know, uh, you got to start all over again. Um, and also in the mom test, um, he, the, the author says something that you hinted at actually, uh, earlier in the episode, um, you had said, I like there, you were scared of some of the answers that some, some of your user interviews might have. Uh, and actually one of the things he says you should always do is that your interview should always have a question that you're um, terrified of the answer of yeah, um, and that was something that that had had definitely been something that I thought a lot of, thought about a lot um, is that there should always be a question in there that terrifies you, and and you have to ask those hard questions now before you've built something that you know no one wants. Um, yeah, so, no, for sure. yeah. I think I think, I think it?
2: with with me. Oh, go ahead.
0: Uh, no, I was just saying. I'm glad you mentioned that that book.
2: Yeah, I was just saying, you know, and especially from that perspective, I'm just like, you know, what if this is something that they're like, you know, they wouldn't pay for. And, you know, I think it's just kind of is like it's kind of what I alluded to earlier. It's just kind of like that, uh, you know, starting back from scratch. And it's like my assumptions are wrong. And um, it's just it's just heartbreaking to see because you're like, man, I spent this time doing this and now I got to start over or come up with another idea. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah, I I remember having a moment of trying to figure out what what would the pivot be, Um, because there was a certain moment where it was clear that what we had originally planned wasn't going to work, um, or at least not in a way that was also viable for us as co-founders. But it was also clear that there was a solution uh, or a solution that fulfilled our mission. And it's such a, like, scary moment to go, okay, so there's going to be something, but I don't know what. Yeah. Yet.
2: Yeah. That's, that's definitely one of those. It's, it's a hard thing to face.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that gets, because you only, you can't force the solution in those moments, right? Exactly. Like, there's not, there's, there, there really are certain things that you cannot work longer hours to achieve. Right. Um. And yeah, it's it's when you hit those. Um I, I definitely have a different perspective of what fail fast and fail early and those sorts of concepts. Um, I think I understood them on just a completely different time scale and like an order of magnitude different time scale before uh before being in a startup and before being a founder. Yeah. Um whereas now having gone through the journey, it's you can almost see in retrospect, like, Oh, I could have stress tested this part of the idea at this point in time. Yep. And it's always easier to see in retrospect than at the time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's such a powerful exercise of like going through and being like, is this the stress test? Is this the stress test? Right. Um, but this is awesome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to to have you on the podcast and uh, definitely learned some really incredible perspectives about how to, how to view beta and, and how to, how to reach out and and get those beta users and and figure out how to make them happy and and make delight, bring delight to their world.
2: No, thank you all. I'm super honored to have been on the podcast. Um, have much love and respect for y'all. So thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much, Kyle. Uh, uh, we'll talk to you soon and let us know when you start hosting these in-person events again. I uh, definitely love to come check them out.
2: Oh, say no more. I'll, I'll be sure to let you know.
0: <laughs> thank you. Perfect.